Section 19 of The Oxford Book of American Essays, chosen by Brander Matthews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 19. The great difficulty with our individuality and independence is that differentiation begins so soon and stops so far short of real importance in no department of life has the law of the survival of the fittest that principle in virtue of whose operation societies become distinguished and admirable had time to work our social characteristics are inventions discoveries not survival nothing with us has passed into the stage of instinct and for this reason some of our best people some of the most thoughtful among us have less of that quality best characterized as social maturity than a parisian washerwoman or concierge centuries of sifting ages of gravitation toward harmony and homogeneity have resulted for the french in a delightful immunity from the necessity of proving all things remorselessly laid on every individual of our society very many matters at any rate which to the french are matters of course our self-respect pledges us to a personal examination of the idea of sparing ourselves trouble in thinking occurs to us far more rarely than to other peoples we have certainly an insufficient notion of the superior results reached by economy and system in this respect in one of mr henry james's cleverest sketches lady barbarina the english heroine marries an american and comes to live in new york she finds it dull she is homesick without quite knowing why mr james is at his best in exhibiting at once the intensity of her disgust and the intangibility of its provocation we are not all like lady barb we do not all like london whose materialism is only more splendid not less uncompromising than our own but we cannot help perceiving that what that unfortunate lady missed in new york was the milieu an environment sufficiently developed to permit spontaneity and free play of thought and feeling and a certain domination of shifting merit by relaxed relations which keeps one's mind off that disagreeable subject of contemplation one's self everyone seems acutely self-conscious and the self-consciousness of the unit is fatal of course to the composure of the ensemble the number of people intently minding their p's and q's reforming their orthoepy practicing new discoveries in etiquette making over their names and in general exhibiting that activity of the amateur known as going through the motions to the end of bringing themselves up as it were is very noticeable in contrast with french oblivion to this kind of personal exertion even our simplicity is apt to be simplesse and the conscientiousness in educating others displayed by those who are so fortunate to have reached perfection nearly enough to permit relaxation in self-improvement is only equalled by the avidity in acquisitiveness displayed by the learners themselves 
meantime the composure born of equality as well as that springing from unconsciousness suffers our society is a kind of jacob's ladder to maintain equilibrium upon which requires an amount of effort on the part of the personally estimable gymnasts perpetually ascending and descending in the highest degree hostile to spontaneity to serenity and stability naturally thus everyone is personally preoccupied to a degree unknown in france and it is not necessary that this preoccupation should concern any side of that multifarious monster we know as business it may relate strictly to the paradox of seeking employment for leisure even the latter is a terribly conscious proceeding we go about it with a mental deliberateness singularly in contrast with our physical precipitancy but it is mainly business perhaps that accentuates our individualism the condition of désouvrement is positively disreputable it arouses the suspicion of acquaintance and the anxiety of friends occupation to the end of money-getting is our normal condition any variation from which demands explanation as little likely to be entirely honourable such occupation is as i said the inevitable sequence of the opportunity for it and is the wiser and more dignified because of its necessity to the end of securing independence what the frenchman can secure merely by the exercise of economy is with us only the reward of energy and enterprise in acquisition so comparatively speculative and hazardous is the condition of our business and whereas with us money is far harder to keep and is moreover something which is far harder to be without than is the case in france the ends of self-respect freedom from mortification and getting the most out of life demand that we should take constant advantage of the fact that it is easier to get consequently every one who is as we say worth anything is with us adjusted to the prodigious dynamic condition which characterizes our existence and such occupation is tremendously absorbing our opportunity is fatally handicapped by this remorseless necessity of embracing it it yields us fruit after its kind but it rigorously excludes us from tasting any other every one is engaged in preparing the working drawing of his own fortune there is no cooperation possible because competition is the life of enterprise in the resultant manners the city illustrates carlyle's anarchy plus the constable never was the struggle for existence more palpable more naked and more unpictorial it is the art of mankind to polish the world says thoreau somewhere and everyone who works is scrubbing in some part everyone certainly is here at work yet was there ever such scrubbing with so little resultant polish the disproportion would be tragic if it were not grotesque amid all the hurry and rush of life along the sidewalks as the newspapers say one might surely expect to find the unexpected 
the spectacle ought certainly to have the interest of picturesqueness which is inherent in the fortuitous unhappily though there is hurry and rush enough it is the bustle of business not the dynamics of what is properly to be called life the elements of the picture lack dignity so completely as to leave the ensemble quite without accent more incidents in the drama of real life will happen before midnight to the individuals who compose the orderly boulevard procession in paris than those of its chaotic broadway counterpart will experience in a month the latter are not really more impressive because they are apparently all running errands and includes no flaneurs the flaneur would fare ill should anything draw him into the stream everything being adjusted to the motive of looking out for one's self any of the sidewalk civility and mutual interest which obtain in paris would throw the entire machine out of gear whoever is not in a hurry is in the way a man running after an omnibus at the madeleine would come into collision with fewer people and cause less disturbance than one who should stop on fourteenth street to apologize for an inadvertent jostle or to give a lady any surplusage of passing room he would be less ridiculous a friend recently returned from paris told me that on several street occasions his involuntary excuse me had been mistaken for a salutation and answered by a how do you do and a stare of speculation apologies of this class sound to us perhaps like a subtle and deprecatory impeachment of our large tolerance and universal good nature in this way our undoubted self-respect undoubtedly loses something of its bloom we may prefer being jammed into street-cars and pressed against the platform rails of the elevated road to the tedious waiting at paris bus stations to mention one of the perennial and principal points of contrast which monopolize the thoughts of the average american sojourner in the french capital but it is terribly vulgarizing the contact and pressure are abominable to a parisienne the daily experience in this respect of those of our women who have no carriages of their own would seem as singular as the latter would find the oriental habit of regarding the face as more important than other portions of the female person to keep concealed but neither men nor women can persist in blushing at the intimacy of rudeness to which our crowding subjects them in common the only resource is in blunted sensibility and the manners thus negatively produced we do not quite appreciate in their enormity because the edge of our appreciation is thus necessarily dulled the conductor scarcely ceases whistling to poke you for your fare other whistlers apparently go on for ever loud talking follows naturally from the impossibility of personal seclusion in the presence of others our sundays have lost secular decorum very much in proportion as they have lost puritan observance if we have nothing quite comparable with a london bank holiday 
or with the conduct of the popular cohorts of the Epson army. If only in political picnics and the excursions of gangs of toughs we illustrate absolute barbarism, it is nevertheless true that from Central Park to Coney Island our people exhibit a conception of the fitting employment of periodical leisure which would seem indecorous to a crowd of Belleville or Viers. If we have not the cad, we certainly possess in abundance the species hoodlum, which, though morally far more refreshing, is yet aesthetically intolerable. And the hoodlum is nearly as rare in Paris as the cad, owing to his presence and to the atmosphere in which he thrives, we find ourselves, in spite of the most determined democratic convictions, shunning crowds whenever it is possible to shun them. The most robust of us easily get into the frame of mind of a Boston young woman to whom the Champs-d'Elysees looked like a railway station, and who wished the people would get up from the benches and go home. Our life becomes a life of the interior. Wherefore, in spite of a climate that permits walks abroad, we confine outdoor existence to Newport lawns and camps in the Adirondacks and whence proceeds that carelessness of the exterior which subordinates architecture to household art and makes our streets such mere thoroughfares lined with homes the manners one encounters in street and shop in paris are it is well known very different from our own but no praise of them ever quite prepares an american for their agreeableness and simplicity we are always agreeably surprised at the absence of elaborate manner which eulogists of french manners in general omit to note and indeed it is an extremely elusive quality nothing is further removed from that intrusion of the national gemildekite into so impersonal a matter as affairs large or small which to an occasional sense makes the occasional german manner enjoyable nothing is farther from the obsequiousness of the london shopman which rather dazes the american than pleases him nothing on the other hand is farther from our own bald dispatch with us every shopper expects or at any rate is prepared for obstruction rather than facilitation on the seller's side the dry goods counter especially when the attendant is of the gentler sex is a kind of chauveau de frise the retail atmosphere is charged with an affectation of unconsciousness not only is every transaction impersonal it is mechanical ere long it must become automatic in many cases there is to be encountered a certain defiant attitude to the last degree unhappy in its effects on the manners involved a certain self-assertion which begs the question else unmooted of social equality with the result for the time being of the most unsocial relation probably existing among men perfect personal equality for the time being invariably exists between customer and tradesman in france the man or woman who serves you is first of all a fellow-creature 
a shop to be sure is not a conversation but if you are in a loquacious or inquisitive mood you will be deemed neither frivolous nor familiar nor yet an inanimate obstacle to the flow of the most important as well as the most impetuous of the currents of life certainly in new york we are too vain of our bustle to realize how mannerless and motiveless it is the essence of life is movement but so is the essence of epilepsy moreover the life of the new yorker who chases street cars eats at a lunch counter drinks what will take hold quickly at a bar he can quit instantly reads only the headlines of his newspaper keeps abreast of the intellectual movement by inspecting the display of the elevated railway newsstands while he fumes at having to wait two minutes for his train hastily buys his tardy ticket of sidewalk speculators and leaves the theatre as if it were on fire the life of such a man is notwithstanding all its futile activity varied by long spaces of absolute mental stagnation of moral coma not only is our hurry not decorous not decent it is not real activity it is as little as possible like the animated existence of paris where the moral nature is kept in constant operation intense or not as the case may be in spite of the external and material tranquillity owing to this lack of a real a rational activity our individual civilization which seems when successful a scramble and when unlucky a sauve qui peut is morally as well as spectacularly not ill-described in so far as its external aspect is concerned by the epithet flat innovation seems to menace those whom hypersesthesia spares we go to europe to become americanized says emerson but france americanizes us less in this sense than any other country of europe and perhaps emerson was not thinking so much of her democratic development into social order and efficiency as of the less american and more feudal european influences which do indeed while we are subject to them intensify our affection for our own institutions our confidence in our own outlook one must admit that in france which nowadays follows our ideal of liberty perhaps as close as we do hers of equality and fraternity and where consequently our political notions receive few shocks not only is the life of the senses more agreeable than it is with us but the mutual relations of men are more felicitous also and alas americans who have savored these sweets cannot avail themselves of the implication contained in emerson's further words words which approach nearer to petulance than anything in his urbane and placid utterances those who prefer london or paris to america may be spared to return to those capitals il faut vivre combattre et finir avec les siens says doudan and no law is more inexorable the fruits of foreign gardens are however delectable enchanted for us
we may not touch them and to pass our lives in covetous inspection of them is as barren a performance as may be imagined for this reason the question should you like better to live here or abroad is as little practical as it is frequent the empty life of the foreign colonies in paris is its sufficient answer not only do most of us have to stay at home but for every one except the inconsiderable few who can better do abroad the work they have to do and except those essentially un-american waves who can contrive no work for themselves life abroad is not only less profitable but less pleasant the american endeavouring to acclimatise himself in paris hardly needs to have cited to him the words of epictetus man thou hast forgotten thine object thy journey was not to this but through this he is sure before long to become dismally persuaded of their truth more speedily than elsewhere perhaps he finds out in paris the truth of carlyle's assurance it is after all the one unhappiness of a man that he cannot work that he cannot get his destiny as a man fulfilled for the work which ensures the felicity of the french life of the senses and of french human relations he cannot share and thus the question of the relative attractiveness of french and american life of paris and new york becomes the idle and purely speculative question as to whether one would like to change his personal and national identity and this an american may permit himself the chauvinism of believing a less rational contradiction of instinct in himself than it would be in the case of anyone else and for this reason that in those elements of life which tend to the development and perfection of the individual soul and the work of fulfilling its mysterious destiny american character and american conditions are especially rich bunyan's genius exhibits its characteristic felicity in giving the name of hopeful to the successor of that faithful who perished in the town of vanity it would be a mark of that loose complacency in which we are too often offenders to associate the scene of faithful's martyrdom with the europe from which definitively we set out afresh a century ago but it is impossible not to recognize that on our forward journey to the celestial country of national and individual success our conspicuous inspiration and constant comforter is that hope whose cheering ministrations the weary titans of europe enjoy in far narrower measure living in the future has an indisputably tonic effect upon the moral sinews and contributes an exhilaration to the spirit which no sense of attainment and achieved success can give we are after all the true idealists of the world material as are the details of our preoccupation our subconsciousness is sustained by a general aspiration that is none the less heroic for being perhaps somewhat naive as well the times and moods when one's energy is excited when something occurs in the continuous drama of life to bring sharply into relief its vivid interest and one's own intimate share therein 
when nature seems infinitely more real than the societies she includes when the missionary the pioneer the constructive spirit is aroused are far more frequent with us than with other peoples our intense individualism happily modified by our equality our constant active multiform struggle with the environment do at least as i said produce men and if we use the term in an esoteric sense we at least know its significance of our riches in this respect new york alone certainly gives no exaggerated idea however it may otherwise epitomize and typify our national traits a walk on pennsylvania avenue a drive among the homes of buffalo or detroit or a dozen other true centers of communal life which have a concrete impressiveness that for the most part only great capitals in europe possess a tour of college commencements in scores of spots consecrated to the exaltation of the permanent over the evanescent contact in any wise with the prodigious amount of right feeling manifested in a hundred ways throughout a country whose prosperity stimulates generous impulse or with the number of good fellows of large shrewd humorous views of life critical perhaps rather than constructive but at all events untouched by cynicism perfectly competent and admirably confident with a livelier interest in everything within their range of vision than can be felt by any one mainly occupied with sensuous satisfaction saved from boredom by a robust imperviousness ready to begin life over again after every reverse with unenfeebled spirit and finding in the working out of their own personal salvation according to the gospel of necessity and opportunity that joy which the pursuit of pleasure misses experiences of every kind in fine that familiarize us with what is especially american in our civilization are agreeable as no foreign experiences can be because they are above all others animating and sustaining life in america has for every one in proportion to his seriousness the zest that accompanies the advance on chaos and the dark meantime one's last word about the america emphasized by contrast with the organic and solidaire society of france is that for ensuring order and efficiency in the lines of this advance it would be difficult to conceive too gravely the utility of observing attentively the work in the modern world of the only other great nation that follows the democratic standard and is perennially prepared to make sacrifices for ideas from french traits by w c brownell copyright eighteen eighty eight eighteen eighty nine by charles scribner's sons the tyranny of things by edward sanford martin a traveller newly returned from the pacific ocean tells pleasant stories of the patagonians as the steamer he was in was passing through magellan's strait some natives came out to her in boats they wore no clothes at all though there was snow in the air a baby that came along with them made some demonstration that displeased its mother 
who took it by the foot as thetis took achilles and soused it over the side of the boat into the cold sea-water when she pulled it in it lay a moment whimpering in the bottom of the boat and then curled up and went to sleep the missionaries there have tried to teach the natives to wear clothes and to sleep in huts but so far the traveller says with very limited success the most shelter a patagonian can endure is a little heap of rocks or a log to the windward of him as for clothes he despises them and he is indifferent to ornament to many of us groaning under the oppression of modern conveniences it seems lamentably meddlesome to undermine the simplicity of such people and enervate them with the luxuries of civilization to be able to sleep out of doors and go naked and take sea baths on wintry days with impunity would seem a most alluring emancipation no rent to pay no tailor no plumber no newspaper to read on pain of getting behind the times no regularity in anything not even meals nothing to do except to find food and no expense for undertakers or physicians even if we fail what a fine untrammelled life it would be it takes occasional contact with such people as the patagonians to keep us in mind that civilization is the mere cultivation of our wants and that the higher it is the more our necessities are multiplied until if we are rich enough we get enervated by luxury and the young men come in and carry us out we want so many many things it seems a pity that those simple patagonians could not send missionaries to us to show us how to do without the comforts of life at the rate they are increasing bid fair to bury us soon as tarpeia was buried under the shields of her friends the sabines mr hammerton in speaking of the increase of comfort in england groans at the trying strain of expense to which our extremely high standard of living subjects all except the rich it makes each individual of us very costly to keep and constantly tempts people to concentrate on the maintenance of fewer individuals means than would in simpler times be divided among many my grandfather said a modern the other day left two hundred thousand dollars he was considered a rich man in those days but dear me he supported four or five families all his needy relations and all my grandmothers think of an income of ten thousand dollars a year being equal to such a strain and providing suitably for a rich man's large family in the bargain it wouldn't go so far now and yet most of the reasonable necessities of life cost less to-day than they did two generations ago the difference is that we need so very many comforts that were not invented in our grandfather's time there is a hospital in a city large enough to keep a large hospital busy that is in straits for money its income from contributions last year was larger by a third than its income ten years ago but its expenses were nearly double its income 
there were some satisfactory reasons for the discrepancy the city had grown the number of patients had increased extraordinary repairs had been made but at the bottom a very large expenditure seemed to be due to the struggle of the managers to keep the institution up to modern standards the patients are better cared for than they used to be the nurses are better taught and more skilful conveniences have been greatly multiplied the heating and cooking and laundry work is all done in the best manner with the most approved apparatus the plumbing is as safe as sanitary engineering can make it the appliances for antiseptic surgery are fit for a fight for life there are detached buildings for contagious diseases and an outpatient department and the whole concern is administered with wisdom and economy there is only one distressing circumstance about this excellent charity and that is that its expenses exceed its income and yet its managers have not been extravagant they have only done what the enlightened experience of the day has considered to be necessary if the hospital has to shut down and the patients must be turned out at least the receiver will find a well-appointed institution of which the managers have no reason to be ashamed the trouble seems to be with very many of us in contemporary private life as well as in institutions that the enlightened experience of the day invents more necessaries than we can get the money to pay for our opulent friends are constantly demonstrating to us by example how indispensably convenient the modern necessaries are and we keep having them until we either exceed our incomes or miss the higher concerns of life in the effort to maintain a complete outfit of its creature comforts and the saddest part of all is that it is in such great measure an american development we americans keep inventing new necessaries and the people of the effete monarchies gradually adopt such of them as they can afford when we go abroad we growl about the inconveniences of european life the absence of gas in bedrooms the scarcity and sluggishness of elevators the primitive nature of the plumbing and a long list of other things without which life seems to press unreasonably upon our endurance nevertheless if the res anguste domi get straighter than usual we are always liable to send our families across the water to spend a season in the practice of economy in some land where it costs less to live of course it all belongs to progress and no one is quite willing to have it stop but it does a comfortable sufferer good to get his head out of his conveniences sometimes and complain there was a story in the newspapers the other day about a massachusetts minister who resigned his charge because someone had given his parish a fine house and his parishioners wanted him to live in it his salary was too small he said to admit of his living in a big house and he would not do it he was even deaf to the proposal that he should share the proposed tenement with the sewing societies and clubs of his church and when the matter came to a serious issue he relinquished his charge and sought a new field of usefulness the situation was an amusing instance of the embarrassment of riches let no one to whom restricted 
quarters may have grown irksome and who covets larger dimensions of shelter be so hasty in deciding that the minister was wrong did you ever see the house that hawthorne lived in at lennox do you ever see emerson's house at concord they are good houses for americans to know and remember they permitted thought a big house is one of the greediest cormorants which can light upon a little income backs may go threadbare and stomachs may worry along on indifferent filling but a house will have things though its occupants go without it is rarely complete and constantly tempts the imagination to flights in brick and dreams in lath and plaster it develops annual thirsts for paint and wallpaper at least if not for marble and wood carving the plumbing must be kept in order on pain of death whatever price is put on coal it has to be heated in winter and if it is rural or suburban the grass about it must be cut even though funerals in the family have to be put off for the mowing if the tenants are not rich enough to hire people to keep their house clean they must do it themselves for there is no excuse that will pass among housekeepers for a dirty house the master of the house too big for him may expect to spend the leisure which might be made intellectually or spiritually profitable in acquiring and putting into practice fag ends of the arts of the plumber the bell hanger the locksmith the gas fitter and the carpenter presently he will know how to do everything that can be done in the house except enjoy himself he will learn about taxes too and water rates and how such abominations as sewers or new pavements are always liable to accrue at his expense as for the mistress she will be a slave to carpets and curtains wallpaper painters and women who come in by the day to clean she will be lucky if she gets a chance to say her prayers and thrice and four times happy when she can read a book or visit with her friends to live in a big house may be a luxury provided that one has a full set of money and an enthusiastic housekeeper in one's family but to scrimp in a big house is a miserable business yet such is human folly that for a man to refuse to live in a house because it is too big for him is such an exceptional exhibition of sense that it becomes the favorite paragraph of a day in the newspapers an ideal of earthly comfort so common that every reader must have seen it is to get a house so big that it is burdensome to maintain and fill it up so full of gimcracks that it is a constant occupation to keep it in order then when the expense of living in it is so great that you can't afford to go away and rest from the burden of it the situation is complete and boarding-houses and cemeteries begin to yawn for you how many americans do you suppose out of the droves that flock annually to europe are running away from oppressive houses when nature undertakes to provide a house it fits the occupant animals which build by instinct build only what they need but man's building instinct if it gets a chance to spread itself at all is boundless just as all his instincts are for it is man's 
peculiarity that nature has filled him with impulses to do things and left it to his discretion when to stop she never tells him when he has finished and perhaps we ought not to be surprised that in so many cases it happens that he doesn't know but just goes ahead as long as the materials last if another man tries to oppress him he understands that and is ready to fight to death and sacrifice all he has rather than submit but the tyranny of things is so subtle so gradual in its approach and comes so masked with seeming benefits that it has him hopelessly bound before he suspects his fetters he says from day to day i will add thus to my house i will have one or two more horses i will make a little greenhouse in my garden i will allow myself the luxury of another hired man and so he goes on having things and imagining that he is richer for them presently he begins to realize that it is the things that own him he has piled them up on his shoulders and there they sit like sinbad's old man and drive him and it becomes a daily question whether he can keep his trembling legs or not all of which is not meant to prove that property has no real value or to rebut charles lamb's scornful denial that enough is as good as a feast it is not meant to apply to the rich who can have things comfortably if they are philosophical but to us poor who have constant need to remind ourselves that where the verbs to have and to be cannot both be completely inflected the verb to be is the one that best repays concentration perhaps we would not be so prone to swamp ourselves with luxuries and vain possessions that we cannot afford if it were not for our deep-lying propensity to associate with people who are better off than we are it is usually the sight of their appliances that upsets our little stock of sense and lures us into an improvident competition there is a proverb of solomon's which prophesies financial wreck or ultimate misfortune of some sort to people who make gifts to the rich though not expressly stated it is somehow implied that the proverb is intended not as a warning to the rich themselves who may doubtless exchange presents with impunity but for persons whose incomes ranks somewhere between moderate circumstances and destitution that such persons should need to be warned not to spend their substance on the rich seems odd but when solomon was busied with precept he could usually be trusted not to waste either words or wisdom poor people are constantly spending themselves upon the rich not only because they like them but often from an instinctive conviction that such expenditure is well invested i wonder sometimes whether this is true to associate with the rich seems pleasant and profitable they are apt to be agreeable and well informed and it is good to play with them and enjoy the usufruct of all their pleasant apparatus but of course you can neither hope nor wish to get anything for nothing of the cost of the practice the expenditure of time still seems to be the item that is most serious it takes a great deal of time to cultivate the rich successfully 
if they are working people their time is so much more valuable than yours that when you visit with them it is apt to be your time that is sacrificed if they are not working people it is worse yet their special outings when they want your company always come when you cannot get away from work except at some great sacrifice which under the stress of temptation you are too apt to make their pleasuring is on so large a scale that you cannot make it fit your times or necessities you can't go yachting for half a day nor will fifty dollars take you far on the way to shoot big game in manitoba you simply cannot play with them when they play because you cannot reach and when they work you cannot play with them because their time then is worth so much a minute that you cannot bear to waste it and you cannot play with them when you are working yourself and they are inactively at leisure because cheap as your time is you can't spare it charming and likable as they are and good to know it must be admitted that there is a superior convenience about associating most of the time with people who want to do about what we want to do at about the same time and whose abilities to do what they wish approximate to ours it is not so much a matter of persons as of times and means you cannot make your opportunities concur with the opportunities of people whose incomes are ten times greater than yours when you play together it is at a sacrifice and one which you have to make solomon was right to associate with very rich people involves sacrifices you cannot even be rich yourself without expense and you may just as well give over trying count it then among the costs of a considerable income that in enlarging the range of your sports it inevitably contracts the circle of those who will find it profitable to share them from windfalls of observation by edward sanford martin copyright eighteen ninety three by charles scribner's sons free trade versus protection in literature by samuel mccord crothers in the old-fashioned textbook we used to be told that the branch of learning that was treated was at once an art and a science literature is much more than that it is an art a science a profession a trade and an accident the literature that is of lasting value is an accident it is something that happens after it has happened the historical critics busy themselves in explaining it but they are not able to predict the next stroke of genius shelley defines poetry as the record of the best and happiest moments of the best and happiest minds when we are fortunate enough to happen in upon an author at one of these happy moments then as the country newspaper would say a very enjoyable time was had after we have said all that can be said about art and craftsmanship we put our hopes upon a happy chance literature cannot be standardized we never know how the most painstaking work may turn out the most that can be said of the literary life is what sancho panza said of the profession of knight-errantry 
there is something delightful in going about in expectation of accidents after a meeting in behalf of social justice an eager distraught young man met me in the streets of boston and asked you believe in the principle of equality yes don't i then have just as much right to be a genius as shakespeare had yes then why ain't i i had to confess that i didn't know it is with this chastened sense of our limitations that we meet for any organized attempt at the encouragement of literary productivity matthew arnold's favorite bit of irreverence in which he seemed to find endless enjoyment was in twitting the unfortunate bishop who had said that something ought to be done for the holy trinity it was a business-like proposition that involved a spiritual incongruity a confusion of values is likely to take place when we try to do something for american literature it is an object that appeals to the uplifter who is anxious to get results but the difficulty is that if a piece of writing is literature it does not need to be uplifted if it is not literature it is likely to be so heavy that you can't lift it we have been told that a man by taking thought cannot add a cubit to his stature it is certainly true that we cannot add many cubits to our literary stature if we could we should all be giants when literary men discourse with one another about their art they often seem to labor under a weight of responsibility which a friendly outsider would seek to lighten they are under the impression that they have left undone many things which they ought to have done and that the public blames them for their manifold transgressions the great american novel ought to have been written long ago there ought to be more local color and less imitation of european models there ought to have been more plain speaking to demonstrate that we are not squeamish and are not tied to the apron strings of mrs grundy there ought to be a literary centre and those who are at it ought to live up to it in all this it is assumed that contemporary writers can control the literary situation let me comfort the overstrained consciences of the members of the writing fraternity your responsibility is not nearly so great as you imagine literature differs from the other arts in the relation in which the producer stands to the consumer literature can never be made one of the protected industries in the drama the living actor has a complete monopoly one might express a preference for garrick or booth but if he goes to the theatre he must take what is set before him the monopoly of the singer is not quite so complete as it once was but until canned music is improved most people will prefer to get theirs fresh in painting and in sculpture there is more or less competition with the work of other ages yet even here there is a measure of natural protection the old masters may be admired but they are expensive the living artist can control a certain market of his own there is also a great opportunity for the artist and his friends to exert pressure 
when you go to an exhibition of new paintings you are not a free agent you are aware that the artist or his friends may be in the vicinity to observe how first citizen and second citizen enjoy the masterpiece conscious of this espionage you endeavor to look pleased you observe a picture which outrages your ideas of the possible you mildly remark to a bystander that you have never seen anything like that before probably not he replies it is not a picture of any outward scene it represents the artist's state of mind oh you reply i understand he is making an exhibition of himself it is all so personal that you do not feel like carrying the investigation further you take what is set before you and ask no questions but with a book the relation to the producer is altogether different you go into your library and shut the door and you have the same sense of intellectual freedom that you have when you go into the polling booth and mark your australian ballot you are a sovereign citizen nobody can know what you are reading unless you choose to tell you snap your fingers at the critics in the tumultuous privacy of print you enjoy what you find enjoyable and let the rest go your mind is a free port there are no customs house officers to examine the cargoes that are unladen the book which has just come from the press has no advantage over the book that is a century old in the matter of legibility the old volume may be preferable and its price is less whatever choice you make is in the face of the free competition of all ages literature is the timeless art clever writers who start fashions in the literary world should take account of this secrecy of the reader's position it is easy enough to start a fashion the difficulty is to get people to follow it few people will follow a fashion except when other people are looking at them when they are alone they relapse into something which they enjoy and which they find comfortable the ultimate consumer of literature is therefore inclined to take a philosophical view of the contentions among literary people about what seem to them the violent fluctuations of taste these fashions come and go but the quiet reader is undisturbed there are enough good books already printed to last his lifetime aware of this he is not alarmed by the cries of the calamity howlers who predict a famine from a purely commercial viewpoint this competition with writers of all generations is disconcerting but i do not see that anything can be done to prevent it the principle of protection fails trades unionism offers no remedy what if all the living authors should join in a general strike we tremble to think of the army of strike-breakers that would rush in from all centuries from the literary viewpoint however this free competition is very stimulating and very exciting to hold our own under free trade conditions we must not put all our thought on increasing the output in order to meet the free competition to which we are exposed we must improve the quality of our work perhaps that may be good for us end of section nineteen